Namaste and blessings. Welcome to Meditative Living with Swami Shivananda Giri. And today is a very auspicious day in Meditative Living show history. Today, although this is actually episode two. So for anyone who has not yet heard episode one of the Gyaneshwar's Gita series, please stop now and go back and listen to episode one. Because that's where we set the stage for what is to come. Today, we begin the text of Gyaneshwar's Gita. You could also pronounce it Jananeshwar's, but the proper pronunciation is like a letter G, Gyaneshwar. <clears throat> Now, what this is, is a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, written, well, it was actually physically written by Swami Satchidananda, but spoken by Gyaneshvar. So. First, kindly allow this Swami to thank the Sadhguru, His Holiness, Mahamandeleshwar, Paramahamsa, Swarupananda, Vishwaguru Maharaj Swami of Los Angeles, California, who for, uh, <laughs> let's see, about uh, 10 years now, <laughs> has been uh, training and teaching and assisting this Swami. Now, oh, 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 and by the way, it was H.H. who began being called H.H. by this Swami because this Swami is a lazy typist. <laughs> and all that other stuff was just way too much to do. Uh, but he assigned this to be the next text covered in meditative living. One of the differences, if you've heard the prior texts that we've done, 
one of the differences in this one is that Sonic over there in Brighton, England, will be participating and we will have discussion of this text as we go. There will be no commentary specifically by this Swami because this in and of itself is enough. <laughs> this Swami is simply not uh, not able to really add much of anything. Can discuss about it, certainly, but uh, certainly not capable of adding anything to it. So what this is, is Gyaneshwar's Gita, a rendering of the Gyaneshwari. This was written in English by Swami Kripanananda. Excuse me. Swami Kripananda. Kripa means grace, by the way. <clears throat> so, let us begin with chapter one, the depression of Arjuna. Salutations to Sri Ganesh, Om. Salutations to the Supreme Being described in the Vedas. Victory to that self-existent one of the pure nature of the self. O Lord, you are Ganesh, the illuminer of all intelligence. Nivriti's servant says, listen to my story. The Vedas, in their perfection, are like the God's beautiful form. Their flawless words are his resplendent body. The smritis are his limbs. The marking of the verses shows their structure, and a treasure house of beauty lies in their meaning. The 18 Puranas are his rich ornaments. The theories expounded in them are the gems, and the rhythmic style provides the settings for those gems. The metrical form is his colorful garment, and the composition is its fine, shining texture. The epic Poems and their dramas, read with delight, are like jingling bells giving out the music of meaning. The principles expounded in them and the appropriateness of the words expressing them are precious jewels set in the bells. The wisdom of Vyasa and the other sages is his waist cloth, its tasseled end gleaming with purity. The six systems of philosophy are his six arms, and the different theories expounded in them are the six weapons held in his hands. The art of reasoning is the hatchet, logic is the goad, and the philosophy of Vedanta is the delicious sweet held in his hand. In one hand, he holds a broken tooth, symbolizing the rejection of Buddha's teachings, refuted by the Vedantic commentary. The teaching of the universal self is his lotus-like hand held in the Varada Mudra, and the establishment of Dharma is his other hand held in the Abhaya Mudra. 
pure discrimination is his straight trunk in which supreme bliss dwells. Impartial discussion is his pure white tusk. Ganesh is the small-eyed elephant god, the remover of obstacles, who represents the subtle eye of wisdom. Action and knowledge are his two ears, and the bees hovering over his temples are sages who taste the nectar of these teachings. Duality and non-duality unite like lustrous corals on his temples. The ten principal Upanishads containing the honey of knowledge are the fragrant flowers adorning the crown of his head. The A of Aum is his legs. The U is his big belly. And the M is his great circular head. When these three come together, they form the sacred syllable, Aum, the primal cause of all being. Now, I salute Sharada, the lover of wisdom, sense, and skill, who delights in speech, the enchantress of the world. My guru dwells in my heart. By his grace, I have been rescued from the ocean of worldly existence and have become devoted to the path of discrimination. Just as when a person applies a magic ointment to their eyes, the vision improves and they can find their way to a great storehouse of treasure. Or when he has found a wish-fulfilling gem, all his wishes are fulfilled. Gyanadeva says that all his desires have been satisfied through the grace of Sri Nivriti. Similarly, those wise people who serve their gurus thereby attain the goal of their lives. Just as when the roots of a tree are watered, the branches begin to sprout. Just as bathing in the sea confers the same benefits as bathing in the holy places of all three worlds, and just as all essences may be experienced in the taste of nectar. So I have saluted my guru again and again, for he fulfills all my wishes. Now listen to the great mystic story, the source of all wonderful stories, which is like a beautiful garden full of the trees of discrimination. It is the origin of all bliss, the great storehouse of truth, and the ocean of nectar of the nine feelings. It is the place of beatitude, the primal abode of learning, and the everlasting seat of all the sciences. It is the home of all religion, the heart of all good people, and the treasure house of the beauty of Sharada. Through Vyasa's intellect, the goddess Sarasvati has revealed herself throughout the three worlds in the different episodes in this work. Therefore, this poem is the king of all epics and the storehouse of the greatness 
of all writings. All the feelings derive their beauty from it. Here also another of its merits. The wealth of language has been related to science and the tenderness of the highest knowledge has increased. Through this story, wisdom itself has become wise. Love is added to delight and the blessedness of joy has increased. Through it, sweetness is added to the quality of sweetness. Beauty is added to love and dignity is imparted to all that is good. Because of this story, there is artistry in art and righteousness is powerful. By means of it, all of Janmajaya's sins were miraculously annulled. If we reflect for a moment, we understand that all color derives its beauty from this story, and goodness acquires its essence from it. Just as when the sun shines, the whole world becomes illumined, similarly, through Vyasa's intellect, the entire universe has derived its spiritual light from this work. Just as seeds planted in good soil multiply freely, all meaning has found its fullest expression in the Mahabharata. Just as a person becomes civilized from living in a city, so everything reflects the light of Vyasa's speech. Just as the charm of beauty reaches its perfection in a woman in the prime of her youth, as when spring appears in a garden, a wealth of beauty is brought forth even greater than before. Or, as gold nuggets appear dull, but the gold assumes a special glory when made into ornaments. Similarly, Vyasa's words impart charm to every episode and they are reflected throughout all history. The Puranas, feeling that they would thus be raised to eminence, have turned with humility to the Mahabharata for inspiration in all forms of stories and episodes. Thus, it is said that what is not found in the Mahabharata does not exist in any of the three worlds, and that everything else is just a remnant of Vyasa's work. The sage told this story to King Janmajaya. It is the sweetest narration in the world and the source of the highest truth. So listen to this story, which is unequaled, matchless, most pure, and the source of all auspiciousness. The Mahabharata is like a lotus, and the episode called the Gita, in which Sri Krishna converses with Arjuna, is like its pollen. The Gita is the divine butter churned by Vyasa from the ocean of the Vedas with the churning rod of his intellect. When the butter was heated in the fire of wisdom and boiled to perfection by discrimination, it became 
the delicious ghee of the Gita. The dispassionate seek it. And saints desire to experience it. Those who have realized their oneness with the divine take delight in it. Devotees long to listen to it. It is the most worthy of worship in all the three worlds. It is expounded in the section called the Bhishma Parva. It is called the Song of the Lord. The Creator, Brahma, praised it, as did Lord Shiva. Sanaka and other great sages treated it with great reverence. Just as the Chakora bird picks up the tender and luscious drops of nectar falling from the moon in the Sharada season, in the same way, listeners should enjoy this story with dispassionate and gentle minds. It should be pondered silently and enjoyed apart from any action of the senses. In this way, the inner self may grasp its truths. Just as a bee may carry away pollen without the lotus being aware of it. This is the way to understand this work. Just as the lotus remaining in its place embraces the rising moon and experiences the joy of it. Similarly, only one who approaches it with seriousness and a tranquil heart can understand this work. Those of you who, like Arjuna, are qualified to listen to this work, I beseech you sages to listen now to my, my words. I say this lovingly and touching your feet. I implore you, for I know you feel reverence in your hearts. Just as it is the nature of parents to be pleased when their child lists out his words, so have you good people accepted me as your own. Why should I beseech you when I know you will overlook my shortcomings? But there is another fault. I claim to understand the Gita and I have asked you to listen to me. In my eagerness, I have thoughtlessly undertaken this work. Would a firefly show its light in the presence of the sun? Just as the titiba bird tries to sound the depth of the ocean with its tiny beak, similarly, with little knowledge, I am setting out on this task. Listen. In order to encompass the sky, one must be greater than it is. So, truly, it is beyond my capacity to expound the Gita. Its meaning is so deep that even Lord Shambhu explained it to Bhavani when she questioned him about it with wonder. Then Hara said, O beloved, just as your nature is incomprehensible, so is the meaning of the Gita difficult to understand since it is always new. It was given forth by the Supreme Being himself, from whose voice in sleep emanated the ocean of the Vedas. Therefore, how can I, who am dull of intellect, hope to understand such a work? It is unfathomable 
and even the Vedas were bewildered by it. Who can grasp the infinite or illumine the great light? How could an insect hold the firmament in its grasp? But in this matter, there is one source of strength through which I may speak with confidence, and that is my gracious guru, so says Gyanadeva. Without this, I would be a fool. Though I have been thoughtless, the light of the grace of the saints enlightens me. It is the property of the philosopher's stone to turn iron into gold. Also, the dead return to life through the power of nectar. If Saraswati herself were to appear to a mute person, he would obtain the gift of speech. Can anything be impossible for the child of Kamadenu? For this reason, I have set out to expound this work. Therefore, I ask you to add whatever may be lacking and to reject whatever is superfluous. Now, I beg you, pay attention to me. I will say what you inspire in me, just as a puppet dances when moved by a string. Blessed by your grace, I am obedient to the saints. Make of me whatever you please. Then the guru says, enough of this. There is no need to say all this. <laughs> now, give your mind to this work. Nefreti's disciple, rejoicing at these words, said, listen carefully. Chapter 1 Dhritarashtra spoke. When they were in the field of virtue, in the field of the Kurus, assembled together, desiring to fight, what did my army and that of the sons of Pandu do, Sanjaya? Dhritarashtra, moved by affection for his sons, said, O oh, Sanjaya, tell me what happened on the battlefield of the Kurus, on that field which is called the abode of righteousness. My sons and the Pandavas have arrayed themselves intent on fighting. Tell me what they have been doing there so long facing one another. Chapter 2 Sanjaya spoke. Seeing, indeed, the army of the sons of Pandu arrayed, King Duryodhana, approaching his master Drona, spoke these words. Behold, O master, this great army of the sons of Pandu, arrayed by the son of Drupada, wise by your instruction. Then Sanjaya said, The army of the Pandavas rose up like the jaws of death, spread out at the time of the universal dissolution, just like the gathering of a dense mass of clouds. It was like the Kalakuta poison seething everywhere. Who could control it? It seemed like the fire at the bottom of the ocean, which fanned by the wind of the universal dissolution, rises up in flames to the heavens, having dried up 
the ocean's waters. Similarly, this invincible army arranged in various positions was a terrifying sight. But Duryodhana regarded it with contempt, just as a lion would despise a herd of elephants. Then he approached Drona and said to him, Do you see this huge army of the Pandavas? Skillfully arrayed for battle like a moving fortress by the intelligent son of Drupada? See how Drupada's son, to whom you taught the art of war and made him an expert in it, has spread out his army like the sea. Verse 4. Here are heroes, mighty archers, equal in battle to Bhima and Arjuna, Yuyodhana and Varata and Drupada, the great warrior. There are also incomparable warriors, skilled in the use of weapons and missiles, well-versed in the art of war. In strength and courage, they are equal to Bhima and Arjuna. I will tell you their names. There is the great warrior, Yuyodhana, the king, Virata, and Drupada, the great chariot fighter. Verse 5. Drishtaketu, Cheketana, and the valorous king of Kashi, Purojit, and Kantiboha, and Shebia, bull among men. Look at Chekitana. Drishtaketu, and the valiant king of Kashi, the best of kings, and Shabya, Kutiboja, and Yudamanyu, have come, and all the other kings, including Purojit. Verse 6. And mighty Yadamanyu and valorous Utamahas, the son of Subhadra and the sons of Drapadi, all indeed great warriors. There is the joy of Subhadra's heart, the youthful Abhimanyu. Duryodhana said, Look, O Drona, there are many more, such as the sons of Draupadi, all of them great chariot warriors, too numerous to mention, all gathered. Verse 7. Those of ours who are indeed distinguished know them, O highest of the twice-born, the leaders of my army I name for you by proper names. Now, listen, and I will tell you the names of the famous warriors on our side, the leaders of our armies. To give you some idea, I will mention just a few. In the first place, you, yourself, are the chief. Verse 8. Your lordship and Bhishma and Karna and Kripa, always victorious in battle, Ashvatama and Vikarna, and the son of Somadatta also. Here is Bhishma, the son of Ganga, adorned with courage 
and as resplendent as the sun. Karna, the lion among these elephants in the form of his enemies, who even by his thought would be able to destroy the whole universe single-handedly. And isn't Kripakarya enough even by himself? There is Bakarna, the brave, and a little farther away, you can see Ashvatama, who is feared even by the god of death. There are Samatinjaya, Satumadatta, and many more whose courage even the creator cannot measure. Verse. And many other heroes whose lives are risked for my sake, attacking with various weapons, all skilled in battle. These men are expert at using weapons with the power of mantras. They have taught the use of all kinds of missiles, All of them are incomparable warriors in this world and full of valor. Nevertheless, they have followed me with all their heart and soul. Just as a chaste wife in her heart loves only her husband, I am everything to these warriors. In the interest of my cause, they consider their lives as valueless. They are pure and selfless in their loyalty to their master. They are familiar with the art of war, and they have conquered even fame. In short, they are models of warriorship. Thus, our army is made up of soldiers of every kind, and it would be impossible to count them. Let's do the bottom of the hour break, and we'll be back to chat with Sonic about what we've covered so far in Gyanishvar's Gita on Meditative Living.
Swami welcomes you with great love and great respect from the heart of all. Welcome, Sonic. <laughs> Namaste, Swami. We haven't heard your voice on here in a couple years. <laughs> yes, I've uh, been taking a back seat uh, with uh, your epics. This appears to be even more epic than. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, go ahead. Well, um, as I'm unfamiliar with uh, the, this text, I've, I've just, uh, I was just trying to find a download of the, uh, the text. I ended up uh, downloading a Sanskrit version. Oh, well, have fun with that. <laughs> so... Um, I'll have to dig out uh, a copy so I can follow on. With... So, so my my question or um, sure. uh, request actually okay. would be uh, for you to continue a bit more into it, so uh, I can uh, get a bit of more of a feeling of. Um... Well, one of the reasons went ahead and broke off here. Um which might seem a tad early, but, but here's, here's what came to this Swami's mind felt might also be occurring for others. Do you feel, okay, you, you understand that what is being enumerated verse one, verse two, that is the actual Bhagavad Gita text. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so- so okay. what I've, um... But then in the transition from that verse into this Swami is now considering and would ask your opinion, uh, considering after finishing the verse of Bhagavad Gita, then saying, Gyaneshvar says, and then reading, you know, his what is his commentary? So, so he's um, so after reading the text, uh, it's um, his uh, musings, interpretation. Yes. Um, yes. So, I, does that make more sense? I mean, would that make it easier to understand and and listen to, and not get like, wait, what what's happening? You know, no, um, no, no. I'm, I'm following. Um, I quite like uh, the bit concerning the uh, the, the insect and how uh, how could uh, the uh, how could the an insect grasp the firmament? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because um, yeah, you could see. The, the insect being a metaphor for ourselves. Yes. Uh, and yes. all um, uh, sentient beings. Right. That until you um, have uh, 
uh, a glimpse or a realization of some sort. Um, you're just unaware of uh, your connectedness to the universe as it is. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's entirely correct. I mean, and many different, you know, um, internal traditions and methods and uh, lineages and, and systems and all that sort of stuff are all aiming at the same thing, completely transcending the limitation of individuation yeah. back into the greater and the original reality prior to the individuation, which does not change during the period of individuation and continues beyond the end of all individuation. It has never changed. It's only it, our, it, our perception. Of. Right, right. Uh, we took on limitation. Limited knowledge, limited perception, and this is the sport of the divine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like no. a it's like a kaleidoscope, um, and it's the same light coming in. Yeah. But uh, each turn, uh, it all the different uh, bits, of the mirrors inside mm -hmm. affect each other to create like, um, a different view. Yeah, a different viewpoint. Entirely different. Not even similar in many ways. The colors may be the same, but the way they show up is going to be different with every turn. And there's no way to, to be able to predict how it's going to be. Nope, it's just random. <laughs> and there it goes, you know. And that's one of the great things. See, there's many of us... Uh, particularly those of us who are engaged in, in any of the meditative practices, we are more prone, perhaps, to these transcendent moments or glimpses, but they, they naturally happen spontaneous to all kinds of people. They just don't know how to describe <laughs> what, what happened. You know, they, they, some things are so big that little bitty old words and sounds cannot describe them. <laughs> and, and when you're new to this sort of experience, it's entirely normal to be totally confused and seek out someone who understands. That's, that's how it works. You know, and you may go through a number of different ways of perceiving or thinking about whatever it was that you experienced until at some point there'll be a ring of truth in the direction you should follow. And even if that, even if that following is only for a short time and then it switches to another gear, that's fine. Because when we, when we begin from the entirely limited physical realm awake, sensory input and then we begin to get any of the glimpses of the subtle realms well that can be that can become tremendously confusing and frightening and and all sorts of things depending how your mind processes it, it it's not it's not all bliss some of the experiences one may have can be dead frightening, especially if someone is in confusion about what's happening. Then it's entirely normal to be frightened. And it's not wrong. It's just you don't, you don't yet have a mind 
frame of reference for the experience yet. Doesn't mean you can't have it. It just means you don't yet. And the unknown is the most frightening of things. So anything that you come across or that comes within, you know, uh, the realms of internal visions and feelings and automatic spontaneous movements, all, all, all sorts of very bizarre seeming things will happen. But none of them in and of themselves are the key. They're uh, more of a symptom. It's, uh, it's like a, um, uh, the, an analogy of your house or like a street. So the first time you walk down a street, um, everything is unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more uh, you walk down the same street, you begin to notice things. And by um, you know, you, the time you've been down there countless times, uh, everything is so familiar right. uh, that uh, everything, uh, you're aware of everything. Right, right. And, uh, and like, and say your house, you sort of know where particular things are in your house um, that you can... Right, and go, you could get to, to them in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because you just know where it is. You know with a capital K-N-O-W. <laughs> There's no doubt, no confusion. It's right there. You j just go right to it, you know. But yes, yes, that's an entirely appropriate description. Because the things of the subtle come into view and all sorts of effects and worlds and you can call them anything you can call them planets you can call them dimensions you can call them realms none of none of those words really matter but there is other things going on and at that level there are other bits of consciousness carrying on with their activities which you might spend a period of time engaged in or you may simply observe you know all sorts of things and it's like it's well if one of the one one reason this mommy likes or prefers um, the term subtle because that will cover anything that is not physical waking reality can be covered by that. If we use a term like one of the more popular ones would be astral, but there are other things beyond astral. So, so then you're, you're trying to work with, oh, well, you know, well, now you're talking about introducing new concepts. You gotta, so this Swami would prefer not to bother with all that and just say supple. And anything that is not, not physical is well within supple. And subtle doesn't necessarily mean unfamiliar. Uh, oh no no <laughs> no no yeah yeah because um, you know um, so with your experiences of working in those uh, areas um, even though you know because you're so much further uh, down the road so to speak um, than others uh, those subtleties are more pronounced um, and therefore not necessarily as subtle to you. Yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the strange, you know, realities of, of being a mystic. You know, um, mystic just means that the individual is having internal experiences that are entirely real, 
but they don't involve the external sensory equipment. The mystic becomes just as skilled in the use and application of subtle things as one can be skilled in the physical realm. And the highly skilled mystics can function in both the physical and the subtle at the same time, doing entirely different things. And that's normal. That's not, I mean, that may sound unusual, but it really isn't. And when that's part, that just becomes your new normal, well, um, okay. <laughs> so what? <laughs> you know? It, it's one of the ways this one would like to share with people. If you're kind of new to the subtle realities, a way to use as like a mile marker that will clearly inform you that what you just woke up from is a real subtle level experience as opposed to a dream, which is just mental imagery. The subtle experience will have more, air quotes, reality. It was more real than a dream. It wasn't disjointed. It had detail and linear progression, logical step-by-step, step, whereas dreams don't generally have that for, for long periods of time. And you may be interacting with others. You know, um, one of the things this Swami does is works with students in the subtle all the time. I mean, it's it's just part of how we do things. And they will you know, have these experiences during their sleep time, during their meditation sessions and stuff like that. And this is entirely normal for us. And, and it's not special or different. It's just another way of communicating at a subtle level. That's all. And it's not you know, it's nothing to, to like brag about or anything. It's just effective. And we get things done that way. And it's been, you know, the, the, a great number of traditions and uh, types of whether one, you know, thinks of, of the Druids or, or the Yogis or the Shaman or, you know, all of these internally focused traditions go into these, these realities, these subtle realms. And it doesn't matter how many there are or what you call them or any of the rest of that. You know, that's something for the conscious mind to spin on. And it's really not of any great value at all. <laughs> Well, how about we wrap it up for this week and we will pick up with verse 10 next week. Okie doke. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you everyone for allowing this Swami to be of service. Blessings. And we'll see you next time on Meditative Living.